need to get started here. I'm getting further and further behind in the book of Judges. We want to finish it up in two weeks. Right now we're struggling a little bit here. <clears throat> we're in the middle of Samson, looking at Samson. and I think we will read chapter 16 a little bit later on in the lesson, and, and I'll just kind of sum up chapter 15 here a little bit. Um, last week, we, uh, we began uh, Samson. We saw Samson's birth and life looked a lot like Christ, even though he he even gives his life at the end to destroy Israel's enemies. But there's some things that Samson, of course, that are not good, but a lot of times there's types and shadows of, of Jesus, even in these kind of things. One thing we notice is that from now on, Israel doesn't ask God to deliver them, and they are never said to have rest. It's it, Judges is a progression uh, of, of immorality. Uh, Israel falls into idolatry and immorality. Uh, and for the last two, well, last four chapters, five chapters, get this. We'll cover two lessons just to illustrate that. Because I think the last five chapters don't end, don't happen at the end of Judges chronologically, but they are two examples of what has been going on in during this time. Then, as far as Samson goes, we see that his weakness is his flesh. His strength is the Lord represented in his hair, but he struggles uh, in the flesh with women in, in particular. And that is, of course, what comes to downfall. Uh, and so, we, you know, that, that's the, one of the things you see with Samson. He, uh, in, in all three examples of with uh, the different women that he chooses, both the, the one that we saw last week, the wife that he was about to marry. Uh, he's in the process of marrying when all that went south. And later on, he, uh, he's with a prostitute. And then finally, Delilah. All three of these are Philistine women that he should not have been involved with to start with. And yet you see, uh, with Israel, just he illustrates Israel's problem. Israel was to be completely separate from the nation around them. And they were to live for the Lord alone, and so they were not to intermarry. And Samson is uh, living out the very problem that that Israel deals with and suffers with really their entire existence. And uh, Samson seems to picture someone who serves God, but his motives, the way he goes about it, uh, is not good. It doesn't end well. And it also seems that he knows better. His parents uh, try to get him to marry the right kind of women and he is not, not interested in that. He argues with them. And, you know, so his parents, I think, were godly, but they were weak. They, they evidently, they, they were not willing to stand up to Samson and say, no, we're not going to go find a Philistine wife for you. Uh, and they did not stand up to him. They uh, gave in to him. You kind of see some examples of bad parenting there. Um, but then one last thing we noticed in chapter 14 that we didn't get to last week was that it deals a little bit with family relationships. If you notice how this woman that uh, Samson wants to marry and then eventually Delilah, uh, how they uh, are, seem to want to use Samson for, for different reasons. They're trying to get information out of Samson. They're not committed to Samson because they don't love Samson, because they're not godly women. And uh, so you kind of see here what happens when the relationship isn't healthy. Uh, 
Uh, love doesn't force or bribe to get its way as they try to do. Um, you have to use someone for selfish reasons. Uh, you know, here they didn't trust Samson, take care of them. Uh, and so, um, you know, if we love Christ, we don't make deals with the world. She, uh, is, uh, been, had been threatened in chapter 14 by the Philistines. Uh, they were threatened, you better find out what that riddle is. And if you don't, you're gonna be in trouble, we're gonna kill you. And so she, uh, used Samson as she's more concerned with herself, not her husband. So you just kind of see some bad examples all the way around. But, um, eventually Samuel will begin his ministry, in fact, very soon, and then Saul and David will finish up the job of breaking uh, the Philistines back, and so chapter 14 uh, ends with, uh, or chapter uh, 15 ends that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years, uh, and then Samson kind of arrived, Samuel arrived on the scene. So what do we make of a man as Samson who is so riddled with sins, and yet he's named in Hebrews chapter 11, as uh, those who live by faith. And you got to remember, Hebrews basically says they were living by faith in that they looked for another city. They understood that they, that they needed something else. The Messiah was coming. They, they understood that the, that the Israelite kingdom was not an end in itself. And, and it says that, that, that without us, they are incomplete. They knew that, that the Messiah had to come and do a work. And so Samson, as well as like Jeff Taft, that we just looked at, understand this, and they live accordingly. And yet these guys are riddled with sin. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit like we do. They do not have the finished revelation. And so, but but one thing Samuel did know, and that was his, who his enemies were. He was willing to join in the fight. And so, we emulate him not by serving two masters, as his problem was, because he, he served the flesh, but his strength was in the Holy Spirit. And without that, he doesn't have strength. Remember, I don't think that Samson looked muscle-bound. I, I don't, that, because remember the uh, Philistines later asked Delilah, find out what's the secret of his strength. They knew it wasn't in his business. He wasn't muscle-bound, probably. They knew there was something else going on. And uh, they probably knew there was a spiritual aspect of all this, some God in their mind, you know, or something that was helping them. His strength is in the Lord. And his problem was that he, that he quenches the Holy Spirit. He does not live by the Holy Spirit. And eventually this is seen in that his hair is cut off. But, you know, I think the most obvious lesson, one of the most obvious lessons of Samson is that when the Bible says quench not the Spirit, it's not just good advice. We're commanded to do that. And we quit, we don't quench the Holy Spirit by not, uh, speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff, that the Spirit works through the Word of God. So we quench the Spirit when we uh, do not read and study and obey the Word of God. And then the Spirit, that's what the Spirit uses in our life to conform us to Christ. And so um, I think Samson shows this in his outward, uh, in, a, in a kind of a tight way he lives. Um, so the sure way to quench the Holy Spirit is to give ourselves over to the flesh, and the world, instead of giving ourselves totally to the Lord, to learn only from Him, we listen to this world, we listen to the flesh. 
So we can quench the Spirit by disobeying Him. We quench Him by not knowing the Bible well. Or certainly by not taking it seriously. Because that's how the Spirit empowers us. And so in that sense, we cut our hair when we ignore the Word of God. Uh, Perhaps we also see a judge who depicts the spiritual condition of Israel at this time. I kind of already referred to this. Things are going from bad to worse, and Samson is a great illustration of this. Uh, he certainly seems to have, of all the judges, has the worst problem. You know, it just, again, everything gets to just getting worse and worse. But the Lord's about to send a revival, of course, and Samuel comes along. We'll get to that in First Samuel. Samuel is head and shoulders above all the other judges, really, at least the ones that we know anything about. And finally, the bleeding will stop with the king. But um, as we come then to the chapter 15, um, picking up where we last left, we see that the aftermath of giving uh, away Samson's wife, in, in chapter 15, again, we won't read it, but let me just kind of sum it up. Uh, he comes back, he changes his mind, he comes back, he wants to consummate the marriage, and turns out the father's given her to somebody else, so he, um, takes, uh, he catches 300 foxes or 300 jackals, ties their tails together, puts a torch in there, and sends them to basically burn down the crops of the Philistines. When the Philistines find out what happened here, they go and they burn her father and her to death. Uh, and, uh, so that, of course, doesn't help anything. You kind of see this tit, tit for tat going back and forth with, uh, the Philistines and Samson. Uh, that never accomplished anything, right? You know, this, you can kind of see that with Israel and the, and the Palestinians, they're still do up, but especially with bad a number of years ago, where, you know, one person would, they would send over a bomb and then they would answer to that. It was always back and forth, back and forth, and it doesn't ever accomplish anything as a rule, and we kind of see that going along here. So, he, um, still, so he, he sends these, they burn down, a, burn up his wife or in his, and her father, so then he goes, um, um, let me make sure I don't leave anything out. He, of course, he's going to avenge them, and so, he is going up to uh, fight them, and the Philistines go to Judah, the tribe of Judah, and say, look, uh, you need to help us, you need to bring Samson to us, or we're going to destroy you. And so Samson basically lets them have him, and let him bind him up, uh, and just say, just make them promise that you won't kill me or anything, and just hand me over to the, to the Philistines, and everything will be okay. And so they do that, because Judah is mad at Samson for causing all this trouble. Uh, so you, again, you, you see this progression of they're not, that's why they're not crying out to the Lord for for help because they're happy to live under the bondage of the Philistines and to, as long as they've got food to eat, right? So they uh, agree to hand Samson over and then when Samson uh, gets, they, the Philistines take Samson, he breaks his uh, bonds asunder and he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey uh, that still no doubt has teeth in it, and he uses that to kill uh, a thousand or three thousand, no, excuse me, a thousand, I think it is men of, yeah, uh, uh, of the Philistines. And then like in verse 
16, he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, teeth upon teeth. So in the Hebrew, the word uh, donkey and teeth or hill is the same. So it's kind of a play on words. He has heaped up uh, all these dead Philistines in the jawbone of a donkey. I've struck a thousand men down. So you kind of see the Hebrew poetry there. And uh, then he's thirsty, so he asks the Lord for uh, something to drink. And the Lord splits out a hollow place there. And uh, he names that then uh, eight four, which uh, means uh, a hollowed out place. And that's kind of sums up chapter fifteen. And so, you know, we, well, we, another thing we see in all this is the Philistines keep miscalculating Samson and, and what's going on here. But you got to remember, they're living in darkness. They're they're the world, and, and they they don't understand that. Everything that they do, since the Lord is against them, is not going to uh, pan out, right? And so you, you kind of see what the Bible teaches over and over again. So and in this case, they burn uh, Samson's wife and father. Samson kills a large number of them. The Philistines come up to Judah and say, look, you better do something about that. And Judah, as we just said, hands Samson over to them. And I, I, I think it's interesting, too, I was in, in reading all this, is that pagan cultures have always understood and had a marriage, uh, the idea and concept of marriage, which to me is interesting because it is, it, 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 I think, proof that we all came from a common ancestor and that marriage is something that God instituted with Adam. And so as the, as the uh, people multiplied and went out from the earth, they took with them the idea of marriage. And, and it's in every culture. Which I think, again, if it was evolution and, and, you know, people just evolved and so forth, where would that have come from? But, but it just shows, I think, that the Bible is true. Just one of the other ways that we see this, that we're all endowed with the concept of morality and law from a common ancestor. So back to this pattern of failure with the Philistines. In chapter 14, they attempt to answer the riddle by deceit, and that's turned against them. In chapter 15, they give away his bride, that's a failure. They burn her and her father, that turns out to be a failure for them. They demand Samson to be held, handed over. The result is Jawbone Hill, basically what that word means there. And, uh, that didn't work out well for them as, as, as well. And then finally, of course, when they do capture him through Delilah, uh, he, it ends up costing him 3,000 lives. We'll see in chapter 16. So one can't help but see the world's vain attempt to get rid of God, to get rid of his people, to live apart from the will of God. Uh, and, it, and, if we, and as you read through this, it's almost like a, a, a dark comedy movie, you know, sometimes we call it a dark comedy where there's things that are funny going on, but overall kind of it's a, it's a serious movie, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Everything that they do, it just it turns out go completely against it. And uh, so, but it reminds you about, you know, what we want to look here and remind ourselves here is that we can do this too. It's easy to say, boy, but what, what a bunch of fools that, you know, they're trying to live apart from the Lord and look what's giving them. But Christians can fall into these traps as well. Um, because we think that we can get up in the morning and not remember the Lord, not remember and remind ourselves of what the 
will of God is and go about our business and live like the world or think like the world, react things like lost people, and then it's all going to work out. And the Lord's not, he's going to allow that to happen. We can fall into those traps. Sometimes we call it, you know, I'm growing cold or I've gotten away from the Lord. That we, we, we forget to keep him before us every day and in everything that we do. We might bargain with the Lord. We think that our ideas or our thinking might be better than what we find in the Word of God. We don't take it seriously. And so we get up in the morning with all of our little plans, all of our deals, all the things that we've decided we're going to do, and, and we can very easily forget, have little regard for what the Bible tells us, what, what the Bible tells us what we are to do, how we are to live. And the, and first, the point is that it's not going to turn out well if we live like that. We just kind of get into a routine, and, and we forget what the Lord has told us. And this, this is all about Him. And you know, I, I don't know if it's been break that we get credit for it. You know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We get up in the morning, we go about our routine, and we wonder why, you know, the relationship with the marriage isn't what it should be or with the children or with the church family or, or, or you know somebody else why things aren't going well well you're not living for the Lord you're not you're not uh, putting him first you're not loving as you should you've forgotten the gospel you're not living by motivated by the gospel anymore and you wonder why all this takes place and we and it's we struggle with that all of our lives many times in, in, in a sense of spiritual insanity but uh, Samson's inability to practice self-discipline has made him blind in Philistine. He keeps thinking he's going to get away with it. Get away with visiting these women and living apart from the obvious will of God. No, it's going to catch up to him. It, it, it cannot work like that. It, so it, it's imperative that as Christians we understand that uh, the word of God is the rule of our life every day. Another thing we see in Samson is overcoming big things, only to be undone by lesser things. In this case, his lust is what he cannot control. He's able to overcome armies of men, but he cannot guard himself against a woman. You know, and 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 I think it's something we can relate to because we all have that besetting sin. We all have those things that we struggle with. We might do so well, but we have places where we let our guard down, where we where we, we think we're okay. But it should remind us to be on guard over our personal passions, our children, our wives, um, all these things that we have to be careful here. In other words, when you get home, it's just important that you are recognize your sinfulness and your needs and trust the Lord just as much at home as you do at the job or, or anywhere else, right? This is, those, those things can destroy you. And it's certainly, you know, you think of just an example. Is it not possible that there are many who show much more concern and passion and are much more worried about, for instance, America's political situation as they are their own uh, spiritual state, right? They're, they're, they see those great dangers, but when they get home, they don't consider perhaps their relationship with their wife as all that important and, and they, they are lax there it's like Samson is lax 
when it comes to his flesh. But he sees the Philistines as enemies. And they were. And everything he did, he should have been uh, undermining them. But he, he has he, he's failed to apply it in every area of his life. You can't fight the big enemies of the Lord if you can't be victorious over the personal ones. And, and it all goes back to self-discipline, which is essential for to be effective for the Lord. And I don't just mean that we have to control our flesh, which obviously that is the case. But being self-disciplined is able to think before we act. It is, and we're going to get a little bit to this in the second message, because, you know, that's about spiritual maturity as a, a defense against division. Part of spiritual maturity is not being ruled by the flesh, which means that I don't just react, but I think about what's going on. When something happens, I think it through. What's happening here? What, what, why did that happen? How does that affect me? How does that affect the church? How does that affect my testimony for the Lord? Uh, when, when someone lashes out of you, you don't just lash back. You don't just return time for time. Remember, wait, this person's got a soul. I've got to love this person. I've got, I've got to do what I can to help this person. It's not just about me, right? That's self-discipline. And you can kind of go on and on, different examples of that. So if we lose control, it is because we haven't disciplined ourselves to think before we act. To consider what the Bible says about a situation, about an action, what will be the consequences. So how many people are in financial problems only because they don't think ahead about where all this is, the spending is going to lead. You know, it's not always that the case. You know, that's just an example. Samson seems to be a bit of a smart aleck, right? He, he, he likes riddles and jokes. He plays these jokes on these Philistines and so forth. But he doesn't think ahead as a result of his consequences. Sometimes, and certainly when it comes to these women. It's our inability to control ourselves for the cause of Christ. And the lost inability to see beyond their noses uh, is kind of what you see illustrated here. I, I read a story that I thought kind of uh, illustrated it as well. I didn't know. But uh, in uh, 1941, Hitler had uh, made a pact with Yugoslavia that basically they would become his puppets. He could do whatever he wanted to, and in re- return, he would not destroy them, and, and there'd be some measure of peace. Well, as that before that could go into effect, or right after that took place, there was a coup in Yugoslavia, and the new leaders uh, said, "Look, we're not going to be your puppet. We'll sign a non-aggression pact, but you will not come in here and just have your way with us." And it just infuriated Hitler because Hitler's what's what Hitler. Many faults, one of them is, he's an egomaniac. And the fact that they would do that drove him crazy. So he had Operation uh, Punishment, where he blitzkrieged uh, the capital of Yugoslavia, was it Belgrade, uh, and destroyed it. He killed like 17,000 people, just put it in ruins. And it took four or five weeks to get that done. And he had to push off the invasion into Russia. And what, because we all know that if, if he 
ran into uh, the winter in Russia, just like Napoleon did. And the general said, we need about four or five more weeks to really do this. But, but the, the winter, the weather came, and basically the weather's what stopped the success of Germany into Russia. And so you see, and people, a lot of people say, look, it was that what happened in Yugoslavia is perhaps what really cost uh, the war for Hitler because he could not control himself. And instead of looking at the bigger picture, he just goes all out on Yugoslavia. And that's kind of what we see here with, with I think, uh, Samson a little bit. He, he can't see the bigger picture. He puts all his energies into this, and uh, it ruins it. And so got to be careful that we don't get so consumed with our way and our opinion, our pursuit, our passion, that we lose the war. And I think it's the illustration of the Samson's spiritual imagery. <clears throat> Sadder still is Judah's acquiescence to Philistine, to the Philistine rule, right? They have no real regard to the Lord's rule. They weren't so wanting to cast off the, the uncircumcised Philistine rule uh, and influence enough so that they would uh, pray that God would send a deliverer. When God sends a deliverer anyway, they don't, they say, you know, we don't want you to interfere. Everything's okay. They become so worldly, so happy to just uh, live the way. And it's kind of like the safism today that we've got, you know, one of the new religions of America is safism of the world. And that is Look, as long as I've got a, a, my phone and I've got food to eat, uh, as long as the government will just take care of me, I'll just give away all my rights. Just keep me safe. You know, the, the, the things that we're being safe from uh, many times aren't real, aren't real dangers, but that doesn't matter. That's kind of what Judah has done here. They'll accept slavery as long as they are safe, as long as they're have food on the table, it's okay. But God put in, in the between God sees Christ seed and Satan seed from the beginning. And if we live like there is no peace between us and the world, then we're living outside of reality, biblical reality. Because living for Christ means that you will offend the lost. You you will live in a way in which the lost will not like you. And it doesn't mean there's going to be physical conflict, but the but the lost will not respect you. The lost will will uh, not listen to what you have to say. They will think you are crazy or something. Living for Christ means that you will offend in one way or another your friends and your family if they're lost as well. And listen, trying to live peacefully with all men, as Paul in Romans tells us, we are. We are to try to live peaceably, to get along with people, right? But that's not the same as doing whatever it takes to avoid conflict. And and I think a lot of Christians have completely meshed those two. As if anything that causes people to have any sort of disagreement or conflict, we, we shouldn't do. Any doctrine that, uh, you know, that people don't agree on, we'll just push that aside. Let's just well on what uh, we agree on. But that, that's ecumenicalism. And that's dishonoring to the Lord. When the Lord says, I came not to send peace but a sword between family members, he's saying that the gospel divides people. 
you start living for one thing, this world starts living for another, and it's going to, again, not always lead to physical conflict or hatred, but differences. We, we, we have different things in common. And especially true when we try to compromise with sin in order to, to get along with people. We think that if, I, if they don't respect me, I'll, I can't reach them for Christ. Well, think about the early church in Rome that was persecuted uh, off and on for 300 years uh, and were belittled and lied about, and yet the gospel went forth in great power. The men of Judah doesn't recognize who, whose army they are in. They're in the Lord's army, and they uh, want to go part of it. It's an interesting uh, thing to talk about compromise. I was reading this uh this passage of scripture in Psalm 139 is um, often put in the back of hymnals in response to reading, right? And how, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast are some of them. If I can count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And, you know, wonderful psalm. Everybody agrees. What is underlined, though, has often been deleted and is and, and taken out of responsibility because, well, it's not pleasant. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And I should have underlined in this latter part too. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And there are those who think, well, we've got to edit God's Word. Well, we've got to teach God's Word in a new covenant perspective. We understand that Jesus says, if you don't hate your mother and your dad, you have no part in me. And so we've got to explain what it is to hate and to be hated. And we don't delete God's Word. We explain it. We understand, look, there are enemies. There are people out there who don't want you to follow Christ. And we're not taking up swords against them, but you better recognize what they're, what they want and what they will do to influence you and to keep your guard up and to fight them with the word of God. And then of course it finishes their problem with what's nice, but it's great. There's a new covenant way of looking at them, but we, but does not God expect us to about his glory and to hate in a relative sense anything and anyone who is opposed to him. Now remember, hate in the Bible, especially with referring to the God hating people or we hating somebody or somebody hating us, has the idea of rejecting one over another, of the, of, of, um, there's a word for it, um, get it offhand. But, you know, with Isaac, have I, Jacob, have I loved Isaac, have I hated? And that he has rejected. It's not that he, I want to kill you, I want to, you know, send you to hell. I, you know, I have ill will towards you. It is that I have chosen to bless one and I have uh, despised the word of the I have just let them go. And that's what you have to keep that in mind. Because when we use the word hate, we, we conjure up this ill will. And so when we come to a verse like Luke, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and 
my children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot not be my disciple. And, and even his own life helps us understand what's going on here. It doesn't mean that I want to kill my mother because she's lost or whatever. It's that, no, when it comes to obeying and serving and loving the Lord, or doing whatever I have to do to get along with family, I I reject their affection for the affection of Christ. And that's the idea of hatred. I, I am willing to forego that, to let them go their way that I might have Christ. And so even his own life, we're not we're never to despise ourselves to that sense. But I understand that when, when push comes to shove, it's always Christ, even if I have to decide myself, right? And that's the idea there. And so uh, it goes on to say, but I say to you here, love your enemies. I say to you who here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And so again, the people who hate you aren't necessarily picking up a sword or a gun and going to kill you, although that certainly happens. But those who don't want you to go to church on Sunday, let's go fishing, let's go golfing, stay at home. Uh, why do you have to, 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 to be in church all the time? You know, why do you read the Bible? Anyone who's tempting you away from Christ hates you. They, they don't care about your eternal good. And so, it's not that we hate them because they hate me, it's that I recognize that as much as if I have unsaved parents, they don't care about my eternal soul because they have rejected Christ. And so I understand that and I recognize that they are the enemy when it comes to me serving the Lord and I and I have that barrier up. I, I consider what they say with the word of God. And 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 I recognize that I love them. And I and I want to do what I can for them. They're my parents, and I'm speaking theoretically, but they're my children, they're my friends. But I understand, too, they don't love the Lord. And I that affects the way I interact with them. And, I, and again, we've probably talked about these things before, but we need to be clear about that and to understand in a New Testament context how those underlying verses there in Psalm, for instance, don't, we don't delete those things. We don't delete God's Word. It's there for a reason, right? We are to be, we are to recognize who our enemy is, and Samson at least does that. And so when we come to chapter 16, let, let's just read this. We, we won't get everything done today, but in Judges 16, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her, and the Gazeites were told, and Samson said, come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them on the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, that's a supernatural act, just like catching the foxes, you know, whatever. This is not something that a normal man can do. There, there's a question about whether he carry them about 40 miles to Hebron, or probably what it means is he carried them up the hill on, in the direction of Hebron, so that the Philistines could see what he had done, that they had carried them off to Hebron, they you know, they would have missed a little bit of what was going on, so 
either way, it's an amazing act. Verse 4, And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Zorek, whose name was Delilah, and the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. We will give you about 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with him. With them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. When he snapped bowstrings, the thread of black snapped when it touches the fire, so the secret of the strength was not known. And you would think that Samson, at that point, would realize, well, Delilah is not interested in me. She's out to save her own skin. And five. But Samson's arrogant. Samson presumes upon the Lord. I can play around with this. You see what compromise does. I can handle it. I don't have to obey the Lord. I know what the Bible says here, but I can handle this. Verse 10, And Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he he knows that she's trying to subdue him to the Philistines. And he said to her, If they bind me with new rope that have not been used, then I will become weak like any other man. So Delilah takes new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the rope off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak or be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into uh, the web. Now either he is a deep sleeper or he's pretending, but you know, it's like it's a, it's, it's a comedy. It's like a dark comedy, right? And she makes him tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled out the pen, the loom, and the web. She said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak like other men. But when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent to call the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then he be, she began to torment him, and she, his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, again in his heart, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, brought him with bronze shackles. He ground at the 
mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to they gods or God, to rejoice, and they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And with the heart, when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And now the house is full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson was entertained. And again, I don't think he was doing anything. It's just that he was sitting there helpless, tied up. They made fun of him. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me once, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one, and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord and upon all the people who were in it. So that so the dead whom he killed at his more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtiel in the tomb of Manoah's father. He had judged Israel many years. And uh, so we will finish that up next week. But some, some stories are just these I wanted to read and not just uh, allude to them. And let me just encourage you, if you can, read for next week the next two chapters. Because some of this, I'm just not going to read while we're here. It, some of it's almost it's almost embarrassing to read it in any kind of extremity. But for time's sake, we really can't anyway. So read the next two chapters for next week, and then the next three chapters, uh, because they are astounding stories of uh, of what's going on in Israel that uh, we want to talk about. But any questions or comments? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, word today, and Lord, we, while we read this, it is an interesting story, yet Lord, we, we see the tragedy of what happens when we don't take the Lord seriously, and when we compromise with the world, when we allow affections, earthly affections, to transcend our love for the Lord, Lord, that we uh, find ourselves not only compromised sin, but unable to serve you effectively and much damage. May it be a time for us to just consider uh, our lives and consider our relationship to the Lord, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you fervently and to renew, Lord, on a consistent basis our our love for you, and uh, that we would take our lives seriously and make you serve you.